The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This week, I am solo. So you are listening to us and you can be listening to us anywhere. You can do so on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, uh, if you're interested in, in whatever you heard on this show or any of our other ones, you can please let us know what you think of it uh, by emailing us at podcast.coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Well, this is the second in a couple of special holiday editions of Money Reimagined in which we're lifting from some interviews that I did on the sidelines of the Uncharted Summit, which was held on June 24th in the home of media entrepreneur Michael Loeb in Southampton. In an earlier episode, we ran the tape uh, of a conversation I had with Galaxy Digital CEO and founder Michael Novogratz at that same summit. And for this one, we'll bring you two separate interviews, one with Sally Krawcheck, famously the former head of Bank of America's Global Wealth and Investment Management Division, and another with Nick Mayer, who is a serial entrepreneur who is building some in- interesting new technology that works at the intersection of Bitcoin mining and carbon reduction. Firstly, Sally Krawcheck, formerly, as I said, of Bank of America. She was once described as the most powerful woman in finance. Now she's taking that moniker to an, a new level, having launched Elevest, a digital finance advisory firm that is especially designed for women. I first asked her to put her old Wall Street hat on and from that perspective, ask her what she makes of crypto and whether or not Elevest is an investor. So Sally Korczek, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. You've had a you know, very interesting and a very important career in, in finance. I want to get you to just look at the sector that I cover, that we cover at Coindesk, crypto, from the mindset of somebody who has looked at it, has sort of taken a big interest in, in innovation and, and crypto being part of that, but from the perspective of somebody who really does understand finance. And we're going through a particular moment right now that is very interesting. 
as you would know, uh, a bit of a regulatory backlash against the sector, some heavy actions taken by the SEC against large crypto companies. But at the same time now, the emergence of some big efforts by major institutions, BlackRock quite uh, notably announcing that it was applying for a license for a Bitcoin ETF. Invesco, along with Galaxy, uh, Wisdom Tree, and now, of course, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, and others uh, launching a crypto exchange. All this seemingly within a much more regulated model. What is going on? What do you, how do you see all of this playing out? And is it something that you see being a, a more of a mainstreaming, if you like, of this technology in this industry? First of all, thank you for having me. It's so terrific to be here with you at this conference on a, a pretty afternoon uh, in Southampton. First of all, I think you know crypto is at its core just a brilliant idea and something that you know the world needs could use overall. It's as you said, the fight with the regulators is now happening. As tends to happen when unregulated things around money grow quickly, the regulators completely understandably. Uh, want to have a look. The industry completely understandably pushes back and the battle wages. And it's not clear at this stage, you know, where this is going to end up. As the CEO of Elevest, we think about crypto as potentially being an investment for the women who invest with us. We have not yet invested in crypto. We would consider doing it. The investment case for us, though, was for it to be a diversifier for our investment portfolios. What we've seen over the past handful of years is it's been an accelerant instead. That when the stocks were up, it was up a lot more. Stocks were down, it was down a lot more, which frankly, I see these large investment management firms rushing into crypto, which is a very bullish sign, but we don't see the need to get into it as quickly. And quite frankly, our women investors are not you know, bugging us for it mm-hmm. or asking for it, but are looking for more traditional portfolios. Yeah, so you don't sort of see that uncorrelated asset argument. You see it much more of something that is just a line. And, we, and uh, clearly, you know, last year with the decline in equities and the sort of the rise of interest rates, that that sort of did put paid to that idea of, if you like, a short-term inflation hedge. But I think you get the the broader community saying, well, but at the end of the day, it it is excluded from these sort of political macro trends by virtue of not being involved in them. What do you see there for for it to become? something of interest to investors like yours. Is there a moment in which it grows into becoming a valuable opportunity for them? Yeah, it could be. And, you know, we offer through our investment platform a range of alternative investments. You know, for us, are the fundamentals strong? Is there the asset serving a purpose? And then within an investment portfolio, what kind of purpose does it serve? And again, the hypothesis was it would be a diversifier and we just haven't seen that. So we're not in any rush. We want to let the stuff with the regulators play itself out for some period of time before we look at making some kind of entry. So you know, the question of uh, representation of, of women is something that you care a lot about, and it's a key part of what uh, Elevest is, is about. The, the crypto industry itself is, is often criticized by some as being heavily male-dominated. A lot of women involved in various aspects of it, but the stereotype, of course, is of this, you know, the crypto bro, the male, et cetera. Any thoughts on that and how the industry itself might seek to diversify it? Well, you think about what crypto stems from. Finance, heavily male-dominated. Technology, heavily male-dominated. Therefore, crypto, heavily male-dominated. Such as it ever was, I, I was at the conference talking earlier about how women and girls are socialized at young ages that were really not good with money. 
um, that we're not great investors. We're told all the time we're risk averse. We're told all the time we need more financial education. And so we don't tend to go to those industries as much as young men do. And when women get there, we tend not to be promoted as much, even when the performance records are as good. In fact, there's research that says women are better hedge fund managers, better mutual fund managers, and better individual investors than men are outperforming, depends on the piece of research, by 50 basis points to 100 basis points a year, which over time really adds up. And yet 98% of mutual fund dollars in this country are managed by men. So it's like mind boggling because we think of ourselves, well, we're a numbers industry and we're a performance driven industry and therefore let the numbers speak to themselves and the cream will rise to the top. Uh, but in fact, that's not what happens. In indeed, there's even research that says that black people, when they start their funds, the better the performance is, the less likely they are to be funded. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is the sort of stuff that really sort of like pushes uh, at some of the ethos within the crypto community because amongst a certain mindset, there's a real resistance to sort of actively trying to manage diversity. I think with the, in my personal opinion, absolutely misguided assumption that, that positions like the ones you were describing come to people on virtue of merit uh, as opposed to, you know, structural circumstances. So it's just interesting to, to see how, how that, that kind of response would happen. Maybe if you can also, though, explore beyond finance, also the world of technology, whether it's crypto or not, I think, you know, certainly as we move into this AI era, uh, where a lot of the world's attention around software development, computer technology is going to be uh, directed. We've got so many women now coming through STEM. There is a, a lot of women in, uh, in the educational, you know, with, with, with qualifications that would make them sort of ideally placed for this. Is this time going to be different? Sure. It's all going to work out just fine. <laughs> I hope so. The answer is I hope so. You know, you look at young people um, and they don't accept as given what I think our generation accepted as given. They're, they're more questioning. Um, they're a little bit more rebellious. They, many of them are focused on equality. So I am hopeful. But, you know, I would note that this is not in finance and in technology. It's not just a pipeline issue. I know when I got to Wall Street um, in my analyst class, there were, we were probably 40% women. Um, and I remember not so many years ago, the Wall Street Journal calling me and saying, oh, the new analyst class in investment banking, it's 40% women. We're, we're, we're on their march. We're on our way. And you're like, no, this is as it's been. And the other point I would make at a lot of these investment banks, uh, people talk about, well, we'd love to promote women, but they leave. While the research shows they actually stay. They just don't get promoted. They eventually leave, you know, after how many times I'm not getting promoted or you're going to stick around. So I would like to hope that things change, but there's not really a great deal of evidence that it will right now. So, so you're talking about a lot of narratives and myths that in some respects are just, just wrong, but they persist and they become part of the, the structure. What will organizations like yours and others, what, what needs to be done to break down those myths? Well, we're just doing it. So first of all, the research tells you that a startup's diversity, the, com the complexion of its team is set at about 13 employees. And then whatever you have at 13 is what you got. So it's very hard to change an established company's diversity um, or its culture, in fact. And wh why, why is it at 13? That's when people start to use their network to hire other people, you know, et cetera. So look, I used to run, I ran Merrill Lynch. I, I ran Smith Barney. I could make 
change from there, but it was limited or it was, you know, wasn't complete. So I started Elevest. I mean, if I want to have an impact, I was fortunate enough to be able to start a company. I saw a problem that we wanted to solve. I was able to raise the money. I was able to get the team. We were able to build a product. We are 85% women. We are 50% people of color. Uh, we're 20% plus LGBTQIA identifying. And we did this enormously intentionally. And what we believe, and I think it's playing out, is that um, overrepresenting, underrepresented groups gives us a really significant talent arbitrage. We're able to bring in people um, who really want to be part of what we're doing. And is it playing out in the, the results, uh, the numbers? Yeah. yeah. So you might have noticed the markets haven't been so good lately. Mm-hmm. We have had in our digital offering net inflows every week since the pandemic. We just reached record assets under management of $1.7 billion. We're helping, you know, call it 130,000 women invest. So, I mean, in the context of the industry, obviously we're still small, but we've got 1.7 billion more in assets than anybody else who's tried this. And there've been a lot of people who've tried to build offerings for women. Okay. And maybe one day a portion of that will be dedicated to, to crypto funds. All righty. Well, Sally Korczak, thank you so much for for being with us. Thanks for for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Now for Nick Mayer, who is the founder of Provocative Science. What fascinated me about this conversation is how Provocative has found a scenario in which an almost unintentional byproduct of Bitcoin mining can be tapped for a secondary purpose that just happens to be positive for the environment. Alongside the more common idea that Bitcoin mining can be used to underwrite the development of renewable energy, Nick and his team are exploring using the wind output from ASIC miners to drive carbon capture solutions. Over to him. So Nick, you have a really interesting, uh, I would say, sort of secondary use proposition for Bitcoin mining. You're kind of solving two problems at once. Explain to us what the principle behind this idea you have for carbon reduction is and how Bitcoin mining fits into it through you know, your, your provocative science uh, project. Yeah. So at some point, if we want to solve the climate crisis, we need to move the entire Earth's atmosphere through some sort of filter. I don't care if that filter is a leaf or the ocean, although I would prefer it's not the ocean, or if it's a man-made thing or whatever. We have to filter the entire Earth's atmosphere and move at least a lot of the CO2 out of it. So, I mean, that takes a lot of energy. And you have the entire climate world kind of thinking, well, how do we reduce the cost? How do we reduce the cost? And I just don't think thinking from a cost minimization perspective gets you anywhere. I'm a, you know, I'm a startup founder. I think about viral growth. So my thing was, hey, what produces lots of airflow, but also produces a lot of profit at the same time? And for me, I mean, it's kind of, you know, as as a software engineer, it's pretty obvious data centers and specifically Bitcoin mining is awesome because there's no sales cycle. You do the work and you get some cash. That's awesome. So we build data centers that are specifically optimized to move as much air as possible per dollar of revenue. And then we suck the CO2 out of that airstream and pump it underground where it stays. Okay. Wow. I mean, I've walked through Bitcoin mining facilities and I felt the incredible amount of, of wind that is being created by these things. So I think I know what you're talking about. But like, how does this become profitable, right? I mean, as you say, ca- carbon capture is not a cheap thing to do. Um, what is the sort of the business model behind it, right? Because you, you obviously need the profits of the Bitcoin, but some of that's going to have to go towards the, you know, the cost of actually doing the carbon capture. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you can kind of think of this as, as a fintech slash business model innovation play as opposed to like a chemical engineering or material science company. What's interesting about carbon capture is that the things you need to build a really big carbon capture facility are kind of the same things you need to build a data center. You need to transmit power. You need transformers to get the right voltage for whatever. You need fans to move the air. You need to lay cement down. You need to put buildings up. You need labor. That's all the same thing you need to build a data center. And a lot of these carbon capture companies, when they talk about cost, all those things are included in the cost. But for us, we're building the data center. So we can kind of, that can go all the way down to zero, really. And then the other thing is that, you know, these carbon capture facilities are using electricity to spin their, spin their fans and pull, pull, run vacuum pumps to pull CO2 off. Because we're running a data center, we're using much more energy than any of these carbon capture centers are. And you'd think that would be a disadvantage, but it's actually really, really important because it means that we can basically finance this thing like a data center and get, which is profitable. And people are used to writing loans for that. And you also have assets on hand when you, when you buy computers, it's not useless equipment. You can resell in the worst case. So what's really important is you have this, you have two systems that kind of need the opposite thing from each other. The carbon capture needs airflow and power and also needs you to capex. You need to be able to spend a lot of cash and the data center side really solves that. So all we have to do is break even on the airflow, which also means we can use older Bitcoin miners that people are getting rid of because we don't need to make profit margin on that. We just need to break even. So that's a big deal. So one of the things I love about this is it is this sort of this dual purpose idea and it's getting your head into a different place. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that we face both within the crypto community and within the environmentalist movement is that everything is seen in a very linear way. Like it really doesn't matter in the model you're talking about whether you think Bitcoin, you personally think Bitcoin is valuable or not. It is the fact that there is demand for it that drives this value proposition. So you just take it as a given that there's a lot of demand for Bitcoin and I will find a way therefore to finance this thing in a profitable way. I find though that the problem when you do that is people say, well, but it's, it's, it's terrible. It's, there's no use to it. And it's like crypto bros and it's all these things. And that, they, they may or may not be good arguments, but at the same time, you know, there's just this fact of the presence of Bitcoin and Bitcoin demand that seems to me like we need to be picking up on that. And, and I feel like the crypto community as well really just sort of like they fixate on crypto as money and this big argument about whether or not it's better than Ethereum and so forth. You know, what I feel like needs to happen is just like step back and just recognize the existence of this system, of this powerful force. Have you sort of been floating around this space for a while? I mean, what, how do you think of this almost philosophically? Uh, it's, it's a fantastic question because I'll tell you what I wish people did. I wish people in the energy and the climate and the crypto movement were just a little more intensely practical. So for us, we have a goal. We are trying to filter the entire Earth's atmosphere. I want to solve 5% of the climate crisis. I want to be removing 1 billion tons of CO2 per year. I will do whatever it takes to generate the airflow required to do that. And there's not enough venture capital or sovereign wealth money in the world in existence to spend the money required to solve the problem. You need to make a lot of revenue. I will make that revenue by Bitcoin mining. I'll make it by buying NVIDIA GPUs and renting space out. I will make it by filling up container ships with modules of carbon capture stuff, floating them across the ocean and using the trade winds to run air across the things. I just don't care. And I wish everyone kind of thought that way because I feel like, to your point, Bitcoin exists, it's super useful, and we stopped arguing about it and using it as a force for good, say, underwriting renewable energy projects or consuming methane out of, out of landfills or all the things you talked about. There's incredible use cases for this stuff. 
if we would just shut the hell up about all the downsides of crypto. Nick Mayer, thank you so much. Really interesting. I'm so glad that we bumped into each other and were able to catch up after however long many years it was since we last saw each other. Uh, and thrilled that you are doing this really innovative uh, way of dealing with, with Bitcoin. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks for the convo. Okay, and that's all we have for now. Listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. So do tell us what you think by emailing us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, money reimagined. Come back next week when my co-host Sheila Warren will be back online with me. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.